Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, February 5th. In today's news, Pete Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders take the lead as partial Iowa results are finally released. Democrats kept their caucusing app secret to prevent hacks. Instead, they get confusion and chaos. And 530 Americans are evacuated from Wuhan amid the coronavirus outbreak. But first, the big idea. He did not hurl insults, lead lock her up chants, or stride onto the dais to the opening thrums of God Bless the USA blaring from speakers. But President Trump's State of the Union address last night amounted to a more subdued version of one of his raucous campaign rallies. He boasted that his accomplishments were like nothing ever seen before, promoted divisive policies, even prompting audible boos at points, and added reality show flourishes to the speech that he delivered in the historic House chamber. He goaded the Democrats, began the evening with an apparent snub of Nancy Pelosi, and offered a boastful accounting of the previous three years that could easily double as the campaign promises he plans to deploy for the coming four. And if Trump at least made a listless effort to channel some of the presidency's soaring rhetorical rhythms, the lawmakers in the ornate chamber didn't even pretend to try to rise above the bitter partisanship that has riven the presidency, the Congress, and the nation. Republicans cheered divisive lines. Some Democrats walked out while Trump spoke, and Pelosi punctuated the night by tearing up the president's speech while standing over his left shoulder as he wrapped up his remarks. The president entered the chamber to Republican cheers of four more years, his party helping to set the tone for an address that followed a teleprompter but struck only slightly more restrained notes of his usual Make America Great Again rallying cry. Trump touted his fulfilled promise to replace NAFTA with the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, and he crowed about his creation of the Space Force, the newest branch of the U.S. Armed Forces. He spoke of pushing NATO allies to pay their fair share, and he went on an extended riff about illegal immigration, rhapsodizing about the 130 legislators in the chamber who he said favored providing, quote, free taxpayer-funded health care to millions of illegal aliens. Pelosi shook her head behind him and mouthed, not true, it's just not true. In other moments, Trump was more overt, making two distinct references to socialism, a not-so-veiled attack on the more liberal wing of the Democratic Party. Trump said at one point, socialism destroys nations, as he looked toward the Democrats after introducing Juan Guaido, the Venezuelan opposition leader, who was one of his guests. Later, talking about his opposition to Medicare for All, Trump returned to the theme, exalting, to those watching at home tonight, I want you to know, we will never let socialism destroy American health care. The body language, too, told the tense story of an address to the nation in the very same chamber where the president was impeached just six weeks ago, and just across the Capitol from the Senate chamber, where Trump is all but certain to be acquitted Wednesday, today, of those same charges. Trump tugged at his lapels as he walked onto the dais, a more restrained version of the peacocking he often does before taking the stage at rallies. He didn't shake Pelosi's outstretched hand, prompting her to withdraw it with a surprised gasp and then a smile. And at least twice, he lightly pumped his fist at an audience member to whom he gave a shout out. He does that at his rallies, too. Meanwhile, the Democrats couldn't contain their resentment. When Trump urged lawmakers to send him a bill to lower prescription drug prices, promising he would sign it into law without delay, Democrats leaped to their feet and holding up three fingers began chanting H.R. 3, H.R. 3, a reference to the House-passed bill that would do just that, but which Mitch McConnell refuses to bring up for a vote. 
Congressman Jim Clyburn of South Carolina, the third-ranking House Democrat, at times slumped in his seat. He even refused to clap when Trump recognized Charles McGee, one of the last surviving Tuskegee Airmen, the first black fighter pilots. The president announced his promotion of McGee, who recently celebrated his 100th birthday, to Brigadier General. Pelosi, too, seemed aggravated at moments by the spectacle unfolding before her. At one point, it was interesting. Trump exhorted, We must always remember that our job is to put America first. The Democratic leader started to clap, but then shook her head no and lifted up her arms halfway, as if to wonder aloud how exactly she was supposed to act when Trump said something seemingly so innocuous and patriotic, put America first, that also happens to be a campaign refrain in a controversial foreign policy dictum. Despite the decorous setting, Trump managed to imbue the evening with his typical reality show theatrics. He lauded Rush Limbaugh, the controversial conservative talk radio host who was just diagnosed with late-stage lung cancer and who attended the speech as a guest of the president and announced that he would give him the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest civilian honor. And then Trump asked Limbaugh to stand right then so that the First Lady could adorn him with the medal on live television. Finally, Trump introduced Amy Williams, the spouse of Sergeant First Class Townsend Williams, who's been serving in Afghanistan on his fourth deployment. As the cameras panned to Williams, standing with her two adorable young children, the president announced a final surprise, that her husband was there, and nearly the entire chamber rose as he walked through the gallery doors for an emotional reunion with his wife and kids. Although Trump never once raised the specter of impeachment in 77 minutes, nor his coming acquittal, he projected the confidence of a man about to get away with what Democrats view as high crimes and misdemeanors, but what he dismisses as nothing more than a perfect phone call with the president of Ukraine. The president had other reasons to feel confident going into last night. A fresh Gallup poll showed his job approval rating is at 49 percent. That's the highest in the poll since he took office. Among Republicans, his approval rating rose to 94 percent, up 6 percent from January, yet another tangible indication of his takeover of the Republican Party. Of course, it must be said, there's nothing triumphant about being impeached, even if he doesn't get removed from office. Trump's only the third president in American history to face such a public rebuke, a historical asterisk, a scarlet eye, or as Trump himself might say, a very, very nasty blemish. Last night, in the chamber, both sides seemed determined not to give an inch. Toward the end of the speech, Pelosi had Trump's written remarks laid out in front of her in four different piles. And as he finished, she picked up each pile and ripped it in half. Four rips. As she headed back to her office, reporters surrounded the speaker to ask why she did it. Pelosi responded, quote, It was the courteous thing to do, considering the alternative. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this hump day. Number one. Iowa Democratic Party Chairman Troy Price finally released last night what he said represents 62% of the state's precincts. According to the results they put out, Pete Buttigieg is leading with 27% of the state's delegates, followed by Bernie Sanders with 25%. Sanders won some bragging rights with a lead in the popular vote, getting 28,222 votes to Buttigieg's 27,090. Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden were in third and fourth place with 18.3 and 15.6% of the delegates, respectively. Deeply disappointing results for both of them. Those two ranked in the same positions in the popular vote. The full results remain delayed with no clear timetable for a resolution. The Iowa Democrats said yesterday that it has staff continuing to try to verify the results. They're collecting boxes of presidential preference cards and pushing precincts to report their results as quickly as possible. 
Yesterday in New Hampshire, Buttigieg's voice cracked with emotion as he celebrated the news that he is in the lead. While Sanders came out on top in the popular vote, the overall turnout figures were comparable to 2016's, but far below the record numbers that launched Barack Obama's candidacy in 2008. These numbers indicate that Bernie's pledge to energize an army of young and first-time volunteers hadn't been fulfilled. The muddled results served to persuade lower-tier candidates that they should stick around, making the Democratic challenge to select a standard-bearer more difficult without a winnowed field. Amy Klobuchar finished fifth in Iowa, for example, with 12.6% of the state's delegates, and she was campaigning hard around New Hampshire yesterday. Andrew Yang got 1% and Tom Steyer got only 0.3%, but they also held events in New Hampshire. As Klobuchar put it, quote, I'm someone that thrives in chaos. You want a steady hand in chaos, right? This whole muddle has emboldened Mike Bloomberg, who didn't compete in Iowa. Yesterday, he authorized his advisors to double television spending for his presidential campaign. His campaign has also been authorized to hire a total of 2,000 staffers. Number two. More explanations for that technical meltdown in Iowa began to emerge, including the fact that many precinct organizers had not been able to adequately test the app designed for reporting results to party headquarters. But questions remain about why the state party chose Shadow, a Democratic-aligned startup, for such a high-stakes moment. The app had been rolled out for testing in mid-January, just weeks before the caucuses. The state party said the delay was intentional. They said they waited to introduce the software to avoid giving hackers time to figure out how to penetrate it. They said the party also chose to keep the name of the vendor secret on the advice of cybersecurity consultants. In the end, the problem on caucus night was not a hack, nor could it be explained alone by difficulty in downloading software. It was a more basic coding error that caused the problems. When caucus leaders started successfully reporting data through the app, a separate system also developed by Shadow collated the information but spit out only partial results. The Nevada Democratic Party announced yesterday that it will no longer use this app as planned for its caucuses on February 22nd. Number three, the overall death toll of the coronavirus has now reached 427. Chinese authorities report today a total of 20,438 confirmed cases of infection. Almost 3,000 of those are in critical condition. Hong Kong leader Carrie Lam has just announced a four day mandatory quarantine period for all visitors arriving on her island from China, bowing to increasingly strident demands from striking health workers. Separately, the Hong Kong government also has shut down cruise terminals. On Wednesday, a cruise ship docked in Hong Kong, initially bound for Taiwan but turned away, with several suspected cases of infections among crew on board. Lam described the measure on Wednesday as very strict and said her government believes there will be a substantial drop in cross-boundary travel. Implementing this move is politically sensitive for Hong Kong, which needed Beijing's approval for such a measure despite having its own immigration system. Meanwhile, some 530 Americans who have been stuck in Wuhan were evacuated after extended delays that appear to be linked to the political frictions between Beijing and Washington. Some had been sitting in the airport for 48 hours waiting for information, with speculation that flight authorizations had been delayed by Chinese authorities. For many of the hundreds of Americans at the airport, the evacuation had been a frustrating experience compounded by the fact that the U.S. government had evacuated its consulate in Wuhan immediately after the city at the center of the deadly outbreak went into lockdown. Those difficulties have been compounded, some Americans in the city tell our reporters, by a feeling that the U.S. government has deserted them. A woman from New Jersey who was visiting family in Wuhan for the Lunar New Year when she got trapped in the city says she's felt like a refugee. Furthermore, Americans describe scenes of total chaos at the airport, with no Chinese or U.S. officials there to help them, 
and not even a sign indicating where they should gather. It's a member a large airport. It's a city of more than 10 million people. This was in contrast to the Russian evacuation, where consular officials had set up an information desk with a Russian flag and had provided buses to bring Russian citizens through the checkpoints into the airport to waiting planes. Back here in the United States, our FDA has just approved a new diagnostic tool to check people for the virus. The emergency authorization allows public health labs across the country to use the test. This move will speed up testing, which until now has all taken place at the CDC's headquarters in Atlanta. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, February 5th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.